Welcome to Simple Life Radio, stories for the adventurous at heart. I'm your host, Cynthia Fernandez, for this hour of stories of personal experiences and perspectives from the people local to the central coast of California. want to let everyone know that archives from today's show will be available as podcasts to listen to either online or you can download. If you'd like a link to the previous Simple Life episodes, just send me an email Send that email to simplelife at pilgrimsway.com and I can send you a personal note and a link to where you can find the previous show archives. They're either on iTunes or Podbean uh, as well as listed at the pilgrimsway.com website. You know, in the news yesterday, there was an article about racism. Ethnic minority actors still struggling in Hollywood, says Octavia Spencer. She was the um, Oscar-winning actor in the role, uh, in the drama of The Help. And she says that the film industry should take a lesson from TV, which is light years ahead. You know, we're going to be talking about racial issues today. We have Pat Duvall in the studio with us, and he grew up in the segregated Deep South, And he only escaped the ugliness of all that when he went into the military. When he finished his service in Florida, he came out to uh, Fort Ord, California, became the first black deputy in Monterey County. And he's just recently published his personal account of his life experience in his book titled From Colored Town to Pebble Beach, The Story of the Singing Sheriff. Welcome, Pat. Nice to have you here. Thank you very much. Well, I know you were born in in Florida, and that this was prior to the famous civil rights movement of 1965. Uh, as I read your book, Pat, I was I was just wondering to myself if you had traced your family history back to kind of follow that through those times. I've been trying for a long time, and I'm I'm still trying it. Um, so far we can only go back to slavery but i'm still trying it is a big endeavor the whole ancestry uh you know research there's a lot of websites available but um i've tried to do that for myself and man i get lost so uh, my hat's off to you don't give up now you describe the treatment of blacks or colored in your book I'm wondering if you can give us some examples of things that you experienced pretty frequently. Well, well most most uh, states south of the Mason-Dixie had what's called colored town, and that's where all black people lived. Uh, there, the black businessmen did do okay uh, before uh, integration, but. When it was segregated, we, we couldn't do very much. We weren't allowed to do a lot of things, simple things like go to a drive-in theater. I'd never been to a drive-in theater until I became a sheriff's deputy out here, and I went to one in Marina. Oh, I just went to see if they would let me in. Oh, I couldn't get the South out of me. Mm. So I saw a guy ahead of me pay, so I paid. He made a right turn, I made a right turn. (laughs) And he made a left turn at this pole, and I made a left turn at the next pole. I didn't know what it was. So I looked down to see what he was doing, and he let his window down, 
and he put the speaker. Mm-hmm. So that's when I learned it was a speaker. So I did the same thing. <laughs> and I just had a ball just sitting there. And each time I did something, I would call my parents down and down south and tell them. And my mother was so worried about me. Well, both my parents were. My mom used to tell me all the time, boy, don't let them kill you out there. Mm. But there, I ate in a restaurant. I ate at the Highlands Inn. It was the first real restaurant I'd ever been in. Now that was that was out here in yeah. in the in the as you call it the deep south. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that wasn't the case, and that's why when you came out here, you still had trepidation. There was a culture shock when I came out here, but. Um, so if you could give us color color in some experiences so that we have because you know we're on the west coast first of all and i realize there's still racial issues of all kinds but a lot of people have forgotten (laughs) and and maybe didn't even know what others were experiencing so um yeah if you could give us a sense of that well growing up um i can remember when uh white emts could not pick up blacks at an accident. So this would be like a paramedic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what happened was the morticians, the local black morticians would rotate. Uh, they would take a, maybe a hearse that they had used for funerals years prior and uh, convert that. They put a red light on top and put a siren on the hood or underneath the hood. but. We didn't have um, well-trained EMTs. In fact, they weren't trained at all. We would just pick them up and take them up to the hospital. And um, and at the hospital, doctors would, of course, help whoever came in sick? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, if, um, if the uh, operating rooms were filled up, um, especially with whites, then... Blacks would have to wait, you know, in the hallway somewhere. Mm-hmm. I know this because my mom was um, an LPN later, you know, later, later years. She used to be a maid, and then she... She studied to become a nurse. Right, right. Yeah. But before I was born, the hospital did not allow black people in it. Mm. So my, my grandparents and some other people in the, in the uh, area got together and bought a big house, bought hospital beds, and contracted a doctor to treat black folks. Mm. The doctor ended up living there, in fact. But um, those kind of things, you know, it, 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 was, it was pretty tough, you know. You couldn't, you know, I, I like Del Monte Center, for instance, here. Mm-hmm. You can pick up a bottle of water here and there anytime, but years and years ago, we couldn't eat in the fancy restaurant. I won't say fancy, but just restaurants, period. We would have to go. There were a couple of three in my town. If We would have to walk down the alleyway and go all the way back to the kitchen uh, where the cooks are. And outside of that window, they might have three or four stools and a little 
table-like thing mounted there, mm-hmm. and you ordered your food through the cook. And so it, like a to-go window almost. Yeah, or you could sit there and eat. But, okay. But it, it was so dirty in most places. You know, you're well, back, you're in an alleyway in an with alley. trash cans Right, and right, right. Whatever. Mosquitoes and bugs of all sorts, roaches and all, and, you know. And the weather. Oh, yeah. If it rained, you were just out of luck. Yeah. But then, too, the every I think every other town in the South had a had segregated fountains, you know, colored and white. Now, if the colored one was broken, you better not get caught drinking out of that white when you'd mm. be in trouble, you know. I remember uh, in a movie that was uh, quite an award-winning movie, in fact, it was uh, The Help, um, how restrooms were not shared either. Oh, no, 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 white and colored. Yeah. If there were restrooms, for instance. So that isn't far-fetched, that was... Oh, that's true. Okay. Yeah, I went through that, and I think what really bothered me But growing up, most black people in those days that I knew, when they get to a quart of a tank of gas, they would spend that quart of a tank looking for some place to, to buy gas, or they just spent all of that time looking to see who would sell them gas. If someone said, okay, we'll sell you some gas, then you ask, May I use your restroom? Most would say no. So when you found someone that would sell you gas, and they said, yes, you can use the restrooms, but they had segregated restrooms, but that was better than nothing. That's better than nothing. That's right. Wow. So with that kind of a, a, I don't know, life experience being so common in the Deep South, I mean, obviously it's upsetting. And when I when I imagine which is just imagining when i imagine living like that i feel like a second class citizen uh, a lot of depression a lot of acceptance though isn't there i mean where people just didn't they didn't fight it no it was a way of life you know we, no, i i i'd never thought of integration or anything like that i never thought of it it was there was, I mean, it, it was really tough growing up in an all-black area because, for example, city policemen. We had black city policemen, but they had no authorities. They had no, no, no authority to arrest white people. I see. So they were basically assigned to other black folks. Right, right, Got in, it. right in Colored Town. Okay. Now, if a white person came out and committed an offense in Colored Town then the black policeman would have to call a white policeman out to come to settle the matter. You're kidding. No, I'm not. Oh, my gosh. No, no, I'm not. But, you know, the black policeman could not leave color town and and to patrol another area. Right. But, you know, white policemen could come in anytime they wanted to, you know. Mm. Likewise with um, businessmen. Now, black businessmen couldn't leave color town to start a business somewhere else right but the whites could come in color town and set up a shop oh yeah no problem at all Mm -hmm. the one thing that upset me was um we had large stores like um supermarkets uh i think i if i recall i think a and p piggly Mm -hmm. wiggly winn dixie like that but they would we could shop there but we couldn't work there. You, you never found there was well, there was never a clerk, nor a bag boy, black bag boy, never. 
And another thing in, in the classified ads, they uh, would have the ad and then at the bottom, Colors need not apply. Mm. Yeah, you know, it really it gets you, you know. So what year was this, Pat? Oh, gosh. That was up until I left in 1964. And so that was, that was before laws changed. Well, yeah. Um, during my time, uh, 1964, I was in the Army, and that's when a lot of the civil rights issues were going on. And I want to talk about when you were in the Army because you describe that as the time when you really escaped that kind of segregation and being treated so poorly. Um, it was a turning point for you, wasn't it? Well, uh, yeah, but um, I was stationed in um, I was stationed at Fort Gordon, Georgia, just outside of Augusta. Well, I thought since I was in the Army, and wearing a uniform, I could go anywhere I want, you know. So me, a Mexican guy and a white guy, we went downtown. We thought we'd have um, lunch. We got to this place. I was looking around. I didn't see any other black soldiers where I was. I said, something's wrong with this yeah. picture, you know. <laughs> so I went. we went to this restaurant, and the, the owner of the restaurant came out and said, you know, he just said, look. He says, he told the white guy, you can come in. He says, but this nigger in this spit can't come in. We don't have that down here. Mm. You all have to go back to the fort. Even though you post. were servicemen in your uniforms. Right. And that, that was during, the, you know, the height of the Vietnam conflict. And I'm, I'm saying, my goodness, um, here I am. I, I probably, I will probably have, have to go to Vietnam and I might get killed. And But for what? Nobody likes me here. <laughs> mm. Well, this is really fascinating. I, I know that we do have to go to a break here shortly, but um, we're going to come back and we're going to talk more with you, Pat. Um, I just want to let everyone know who is listening out there that um, tomorrow is the first Sunday of the month, and that means that the Monterey Bay Tracking Club meets at 8 a.m., and we meet at the Ord Market right off of Imgen. It's actually on Imgen. So, um, yeah, after we meet there, we'll head out as a group. If you want to know um, any more information about that, then just give us a call at the bookstore. Paul or Tim at the bookstore will be able to answer your questions about that. The number there, 831-624-4955. They're happy to help you with that. Our guest today on Simple Life Radio is Pat Duvall, affectionately known as the Singing Sheriff, which we're going to find out more about later. And uh, we will be um, having this particular interview available as a podcast after the show today. I also want to mention that Pat has just published uh, his book, which is um, in stock at the bookstore Pilgrim's Way on Dolores between 5th and 6th in Carmel. So stop by and get your copy or give us a call to send you yours. We mail things out routinely. And if you don't already know it, there is such a thing as curbside service for our customers. And curbside service is where you just call and make whatever arrangements with us. And then... Um, we will run it out to you. You do not have to find parking. So keep that in mind. Just want to make it easy for you. 
Um, Pat is going to be at our bookstore and uh, he'll be available for a book signing event later on this month. That would be on Saturday, August 23rd from 1 to 3 in the afternoon. And when we come back after this break, we're going to talk more to Pat about his movie business and TV appearances. I'm your host, Cynthia Fernandez, and this is Simple Life. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Simple Life Radio. I'm your host, Cynthia Fernandez, and our guest today, Pat Duvall, the singing sheriff. And before we went to the break, I mentioned that uh, Pat has appeared in many movies and television. Um, he's actually, when I was doing some research on Pat, I read that he is a buddy of Clint Eastwood's, which might be why you were in so many Clint Eastwood movies. <laughs> so, um... Why don't we hear about some of that, Pat? What tell us about your movie career and your and your TV appearances? Well, I I um, that was always a dream. Um, when I was a little kid, that was before television. Though when I was a little kid, I used to say, one of these days I'm going to sing with Doris Day and Les Brown and um, a few others. But you know, and you know, it's, you're crazy. You you talk like white folks. <laughs> it was just a dream. You know, I used to listen to the radio all the time when I was a young kid, listening to Gordon McRae and Howard Keel. I really loved. I didn't get to meet Howard Keel. He passed away just before I could meet him. Mm. But I never thought really that I'd be singing with anybody. I was just running my mouth when I was a little kid. And the next thing I know. Um, my boss, Sheriff Davenport at the time, he was the one who introduced me to Clint Eastwood. And from then on, we became good friends. And then all of a sudden, one day, hey, come here. So what? I'm gonna get a, get a part for you. A part, really? I was, <laughs> it was gonna be a little one for me, a cameo role in Play Misty for me, but I had an appendectomy before during that time and you weren't do. in it no 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 uh, the first one i was in was the uh, enforcer one of those dirty hairy movies oh those are so great uh, this one he ended up in uh, alcatraz well into the movie about 40 minutes i had a little part in there speaking part and that got me into the screen actors guild and then another time um uh, I was in one sudden impact where he says That's my favorite Dirty Harry movie. Where he says, Make my day. <laughs> well I'm I have the first dialogue in that movie. Really? Yes. I'm the bailiff in the uh, courtroom there at the beginning. And that was real fun. It was, it was fun. That had to be just amazing. Well yeah, in my little hometown it, some of the people think I'm a movie star, but I don't <laughs> I'm nobody. And then I went to um later on in years, I uh, did another cop movie. It wasn't a Dirty Harry movie. It was called The The Rookie with Clint and Charlie Sheen. And there I had the opening dialogue as well. And then I did um, I did a show with Doris Day called Doris Day's Best Friends, me and Angie Dickinson. 
Wow. That show and uh, you yeah. just saying this like it's so like you know not a big deal, but it is a big deal. It is. Oh, well, like, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I I, I um, met Alan Fun. Well, um, when he was doing Candid Camera, and in fact, I had I, I had a principal part in one of those episodes. Which one? Um, well, uh, um, Candid Camera, but uh, it was silly. I was uh, we we shot this at the Embassy Suites over in Seaside. I was um, a security guard carrying a radar gun. It was crazy. And I was writing people up for driving over five miles an hour. <laughs> and I, I, I tell you who I got was Ronald Reagan's um, uh, Ed Meese. Well, I, I forget the position. He was, uh, I think he was the, um, he was on Ronald Reagan's staff, and I think he was the attorney general. I'm not sure. But his son, I got him. He's just, and I'm walking around the parking lot with a radar gun. But the plug was in my pocket. The wire just went to my pocket. <laughs> you know, these people went for it. Oh, my goodness. And then we had to tell them later on that you're on candid camera. But I, I, he and I became really good friends, and I was always singing someplace. I was singing at Spanish Bay or Lorellis Lodge. And he would always come out, Alan Fun. He, he liked, uh, his favorite song was September song because he was born in September. Oh, yeah. And we used to judge bacon contest and all. And he had two younger kids. Um, they're grown now, but I still hear from him. It was really neat. He was he's really he was really um, a nice guy. But when he passed away, the news media went out to interview his son Peter, mm-hmm. who's Pe- still local, by the yeah, way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Peter told him, says, if you want to know anything about my dad, go over to Pat Duvall's house. <laughs> And so Carol looked out front. Out, out front. Uh, Ca- Carol's your wife? Yeah. yeah. She looked out front says, I think you better come here. So <laughs> all of these networks were there. They wanted wanted to interview me. So we sat out on my deck, sat up out there, and, and I talked about him, you know. You were the authority on Alan Funt. No, I didn't realize that, but he was a good friend. And any time he came in where I was saying, I'm well, I did everybody the same way. I knew most people's favorite songs, mm-hmm. and I would sing them, you know. And uh, he was—he he just liked being treated like in any other ordinary person, you know. And likewise with Eastwood and Eastwood's mother. She used to come out to hear me sing all the time, and we had a good time back in the days. Now I'm old. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> You're still kicking. <laughs> now, I know that there's a story about... You singing with Maya Angelou, and that she's actually the inspiration for this book. Well, you know, my, I, I was singing um, at the um, old Neil Levons on Cannery Row, and I heard this voice. I came to hear this singing sheriff, and I turned around and. That was my Angelo, along with a local opera singer named Reg Houston. And I was singing, and I turned around and looked, and I, I stopped singing. It was, it was just, I was dumbfounded. Got I your attention. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had a good time. As far as I can remember, we sang some songs and, and had, just had a good time. And then she and I sat at the table, 
And she asked me, you know, how did I get here? She asked me all kinds of questions, and I told her. I, I said, um, she says, well, you should keep notes. Maybe you want to write a book someday. I says, all, all I can do is write police reports. I'm not a grammarian <laughs> at all. And she says, stop it. She says, I says, um, she says, she says, when I write, I write the way I speak. So if you ever write a book, you do that. Write the way you speak. So that's what I did. I kept notes over the years, and you know, but I was afraid of my grammar. I was worried about it, you know. And uh, well, one of the things I really enjoyed about reading your book, Pat, having met you, it it is how you speak. I mean, you yeah. took her advice, and I think it's important to preserve that. That's authenticity. Well, uh, uh, Mrs. Um, Delberta Myers, she's a retired English professor from Stanford. She looked the book over and told me the same thing. She mm. said, there are, there are some grammatical er- errors, but not that many. But And and she also said, there's some run-on sentences, but that's the way you talk. <laughs> so, you know. Well, I know that singing has been a love of yours, thus your affectionate label, The Singing Sheriff. What are some particularly favorite songs to sing or artists work that you like to work with steve tosh <clears throat> pardon me steve tosh has been playing um for me for a number of years also i have a new young kid well he's not new he's no everybody knows him, michael martinez but i like all i, I sing all kinds of music i i love puccini's uh madame butterfly mm. And I had the chance to do that love duet with a young soprano many years ago, and we got a standing ovation, and I started crying. She should have been crying, but I started crying because they wouldn't stop applauding. It was about almost 10 minutes. I couldn't believe it. But then I like country music, too. And um, when I was a little kid, I used to like Eddie Arnold. I used to love to hear him yodel, you know, and I tried to learn to yodel. But I had a chance to sing with a lot of uh, country western stars like the Gallon Brothers, Vince Gill, Charlie Daniels, uh, uh, Glenn Campbell and his wife. I'm uh, not his wife, but his daughter Debbie, mm-hmm. and and a number of others, the Smothers Brothers. Oh, yeah. I, I hosted the AT and T kickoff here for I think about three or four years, and um, that was that used to be called the the um, Bing Crosby Pro-Am. That's right. Right. So I, I had a chance to sing and host that show, and and I got got to sing with all those guys all the time. But I like country music as well. And, and Whitney Houston? Oh, yeah. I, I, oh, your one moment in time. That's a song that just really gets me. You know? mm. So sorry to see her go. I know. I know. But I, I like children's uh, uh, songs too. I like to sing to little kids. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, kids are walking down the street looking at their iPods and everything. I don't know. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> well, is there something you'd like to you sing for us today? I couldn't do anything, but I just um, I I could maybe just whisper a, a couple of lines from. Oh, let's see. Fly me to the moon and let me stay up upon the star. I've got those words all mixed up. But <laughs> she gets too hungry for dinner at eight. 
Don't like the theater, but never comes late. She never bothers with people she hate. That's why the lady is a tramp. And they got me when they played that. Someone was dancing with Queen Elizabeth, and they sang that song. I almost died. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I almost died. Oh, boy. And this was in England? It was on the news. Or was right? she it, visiting somewhere? She was... She, where was she? And I almost fell out. And even the, <laughs> even the broadcaster said, "Oh my goodness!" <laughs> yeah, it's not what, what you. No, yeah, not what you'd pair mm -hmm. with Queen Elizabeth. No. My goodness. But I did my share of doo wopping and all of that during the fifties and. Yeah. Oh yeah, I did all of that. I did it all. I oh man. So what? What do you? Anything on the horizon that you aspire for, your singing, experience. I, I, you know, I, I'm singing now at a cabaret style. Okay. At um, Corral de Terra Country Club, and I'm having a time, a good time doing that. But it's been a long time since I've been singing. You know, I, the notes I don't. Um, I used to get really high notes at one time. And, now I'm old. I can't do it anymore. I just <laughs> well, maybe change the octave, right? That, that, <laughs> that singing sheriff thing. That um, how did that come about, Pat? Because it's everywhere. I see you. I see the singing sheriff. Someone heard me sing one night in a grocery store. Um, that's when um, Save Mart at the mouth of the valley was called Money Mart. And I used to go there late at night, shop around, and I was singing, and the guy said, hey, you, you uh, that's a nice voice. Why don't you come join up with us? <laughs> but I, 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 you know, he wanted me to join the symphony chorus. No. So another buddy of mine, another black fellow, uh, he was in the Army. He, he was in there in the symphony chorus. He took me there, and I looked in there, and I saw all of these white people, and I told him, I said, no, I can't go in there. There's too many white people, and I'm not used to being around white people, but I went in anyway, and the next thing I know, the the Heimo Toiba was the conductor of the symphony in those days, and he uh, auditioned me, and he says, you are a countertenor. I says, fine, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> you sing so high, but anyway, I joined the Choral Society, and then I, I really had a ball. It was like a big family, oh. and uh, I, I, uh, I got the. I think it was the first or second year when I was there. He gave me a solo. He says, "You're our singing sheriff," and that's and it stuck. Oh. It stuck. And I called my parents down in Florida. I says, "Guess what?" I says, "I'm going to be in a concert." My mom said, "Boy." I told you, you're moving too fast out there. Somebody's <laughs> gonna kill you. And um, and I says, I'm 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 a I'm gonna be a soloist, mom, and I'm gonna wear tails, and people are gonna pay to come hear me. My mom says, really, boy, <laughs> you better be careful. They're gonna kill you, boy. You better come home. <laughs> yeah, she was scared. But from then on, you know, that's why I got that name of singing sheriff, and it led to a lot of other things. You know, I. Started singing the national anthem at the Giants games, and they know me as the singing sheriff. And if they don't know my name, they know I'm the singing sheriff. You know. That's right. That's right. Well, there's not too many of those, I imagine. 
Well, you know, um, we're going to need to take another break here. But when we come back, I want to find out from you, Pat, what it was like to become the first black sheriff in Monterey County. I mean, that was a turning point not only for you, which has a lot of humor in it, but also, I'm sure, for for the area here. So um, we're going to take our uh, second break for the hour and uh, come back with Pat Duvall, who has his newest book in stock at Pilgrim's Way titled From Colored Town to Pebble Beach, The Singing Sheriff. And if you want to give the store a call and reserve your copy, the number there, 831-624-4955. And uh, we'll be back with more Simple Life. I'm your host, Cynthia Fernandez. Don't go away. And we're back in studio. Thanks for staying with us. If you're just joining us, our guest today, Pat Duvall, is a local retired sheriff he is a local singer actor and now a published author his newest book titled from colored town to pebble beach the singing sheriff and he is just a hoot so um pat before we went to the break uh, i i wanted to talk about how how this all transpired that you became the first black sheriff in Monterey County. Can you tell us, I mean, I know you were in the military and we're kind of skipping through what your book fantastically puts out uh, in great detail, but um, from the military, you transitioned to California. Is that kind of how it started? Well, yeah, I had no intentions of becoming a sheriff's deputy, to tell you the truth. Um, um, a, a, a buddy of mine, he's, he's passed away, Willis Stallworth. He says, well, let me back up a little bit. I was stationed in Panama. I was in the military police. And um, the reason I went down there during the Vietnam conflict was because they were having problems in the zone. So they sent a bunch of us down there. So we had seven months left, and they sent me, sent ten of us to Fort Ord. Well, I was in line to become a canal zone policeman in the canal zone. I liked it down there because it was so diverse. And also, I was also accepted at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. I was going to study music there. But when I went to the, sh- the sheriff wanted to talk to me, so we talked. He said, I need some more deputies. He didn't say anything about black deputies now. Mm. He said, I need some more deputies. I want, you know, someone to apply and blah, blah, blah. So I told him I had three months left in the Army, and I would think about it. So uh, I took the test that, oh, it was July uh, of 1967. And I took a Greyhound bus across country. I wanted to see if things had changed. So you were coming from? I was leaving Fort Ord. I, I, I left Fort Ord. Let's see, I was discharged from the Army. A couple of months later, I took the test for sheriff's deputy just to see really if I could pass it. And uh, that Tuesday, I went cross-country on a Greyhound bus. I wanted to see what it was like, you know. Got to Biloxi, Mississippi. There was a vacant seat there. Uh, um, I said, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay in my seat. That was a vacant seat next, next to me. Next to you, yeah. I said, because I might get in trouble. So I'll just sit here and just wait. I was already thrilled about sitting in, in the front of the bus, you know. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And um, 
the driver came back and says, look, this lady, um, this, this white lady and her daughter wants the seats. I said, well, I'm sorry. I've been on the road three days. I can't, I'm not going to give up my seat. But I knew something was going to happen, but it did not. I mean, that was a lot. Of, he gave me a lot of trouble. I got home that Saturday afternoon. There was an airmail special delivery there waiting for me, stating that I had passed the written that Monday mm. night. And I was a half an hour late because I didn't know how to get to Salinas. Uh-huh. And, um, but I still took the test. But um, I... Um, uh, My dad handed me this letter. He says, this came. I thought it was for me, but it's for you. And the letter stated that I had passed the written, can I come back that Tuesday for the oral? Now, I'm saying, oh, my goodness. So that Sunday, I drove around, still couldn't go to the restaurant, still couldn't do this, still couldn't go there, couldn't do this, couldn't do that, couldn't buy gasoline, can't do this. I didn't unpack. I came back out here that Monday. Went to the oral Tuesday, and that following Monday, the undersheriff, Jimmy Rodriguez, called, called me by phone. I was staying with friends at Fort Ord. He says, you're one of us now. I said, fine, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he told me, I said, oh, my goodness. And he says, do you have a car? I said, no. I said, um, uh, I'll find a way. And he said, no, nope, I'll come get you. So anyway, he came and got me. And after I was sworn in, I'm making a long story short, after I was sworn in, I had no idea I was the first black sheriff's deputy. I really didn't. And when I found out, that was a shock. It scared me to death, you mm. know. Well, you know, I says, well, maybe if I have to patrol in a color town here, maybe the, it'll be a little better. <laughs> so they told me I'd be working in Carmel. Well, I thought Carmel was color town, a color town. I didn't know. <laughs> and um, I ended up uh, patrolling, and then later on, uh, in Pebble Beach, but it was all a culture shock, you know. Well, you mentioned in, in your book um, the trepidation you had knocking on uh, what you call a white person's door. Well, I was having the first um, the first not day I was on patrol by myself, well, th- that night, um, I got this call, and, and I was really nervous about it because it was dark because I had never been to a white person's front door in my life. And down home, in those days, if a black person was hanging around that front door, he can get shot, mm. you know? So I was thinking about that as I knocked on this door. But I, when I got the call, that was that was, that was was scary. It was a cold night, and I was sweating. It says, that's 12, Monterey. I said, oh, my God, that's me. <laughs> and they called me again. I pulled off to the side of the road, and I, I was just perspiring. I said, oh, my God. So anyway, I went to this house, and I knocked on the door. And I could hear the lady coming. I said, oh, my God. I, I expected her to call me all kinds of names and tell me to get away, you know. Yeah. She opened the door, and I said, hi, I'm Pat Duvall. And she says, oh, yeah, come on in. I looked. <laughs> I said, what? She says, come in. She says, are you okay? I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I walked in, and I stood by the foyer. She walked into her living room, and she's talking away. And she turns around, and she looks. She doesn't see me behind her in the living room. She says, what are you doing back there? Come in here. So I said, oh, okay. In my head, I'm saying, oh, my God, I'm going in the white person's living room. I I came through the front door. That blew me away. And so she says, sit down. I said, huh? (laughs) She says, I just made some coffee. Would you like to have some? Oh, God. 
I said to myself, I came through the front door. I'm sitting down in the living room. She offered me coffee. I, I said, I think this is a setup. I believe they're <laughs> setting me up at the office. But it scared me. And um, I don't want to use the word scared. It was just, it was tough. I took the call and left. Went down the highway and pulled off into a turnout and just... <laughs> Your heart was pounding. Oh, God, I was so nervous. Oh. And I, it was just, I'd never been to a white person's front door. Never, and, never and, associated. And the people, your colleagues on the force, they treated you fine. Yeah, they, yeah. Because this was new for them. If you were the first well, black. Well, yeah, there were one or two who didn't like the idea. But uh -huh. the, what they did, what they didn't understand was, and I didn't tell them. You know, uh, maybe I I appeared to be a dummy or something, not knowing, um, I my penal codes and all. I studied them, but. Just being around white people made me uncomfortable. I tried to quit several times, but they wouldn't let me. My boss wouldn't let me. I had never seen an integrated school till I came here. Mm. And I had never seen white doctors treating black folks. I mean, just right here. I mean, the, the, I mean, there were some in the South, but we had to go to the back. Uh, uh, back entrance or back yeah, lobby. And, yeah, and wait, you know. But yeah. here, boy, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Everybody was together. Yeah. The, the, um, the, the, the station commander said, your instructor's going to take you up to uh, the hospital that, because that's in our area, community hospital in those days. And I saw these black people coming in and a white doctor's waiting on them. And I said, my goodness, and I called my parents the next day and told them <laughs> what I saw. And I had walked to the hospital, and I saw black and white uh, patients in the same room. That really slayed me, you know. Mm. Because, you know, back in the day, uh, back down south, it was different, you know. Well, I want to ask you about that, Pat. Now, it's 2014. We still have racial issues throughout the country, throughout the world also. And racial issues, of course, is an issue of appearance. People look different. It could be, it could be any kind of different. It could be tattoos or body piercing. It could be hairstyles. It could be clothes styles. It could be skin color or actually, you know, disabilities, physical disabilities. Right. What is your sense about the root or the, the basis, whatever supports or motivates racial issue I wish I could answer that I really do I I just don't know I um I don't know I I remember one time when I was a kid um I was looking my my mom was window shopping I was with her and there was a lady with her son and he had a toy in his hand and we were just kind of playing you know and she uh, looked around his mother looked around and saw us smiling at each other. He was trying to hand me his toy. And she snatched him and says, I don't ever want to see you talking with another nigger. And took off. I, I didn't understand. And I asked my mom, I said, Mom, why, why did she say that? Mama, my mom told me, don't worry about it. Just It's going to happen. But just, you just learn to ignore Let it. Let it go. Yeah. Let it go. But it's, racism is all, it's going to be here all the time. I mean, it's all, all, all over everywhere. And I can pick it up, though. Mm -hmm. I remember one time I answered a call. And a guy opens the door. He says, my goodness, you're a nigger. He says, I don't like niggers. 
So I looked at him and I says, I don't either. <laughs> he says, you don't either? <laughs> I left him scratching his head. Oh. Boy, he, he couldn't understand, but I left, you know. Yeah. Well, what advice would you give someone who's dealing with an issue of appearance, some kind of uh, disrespect or bad treatment? Well, I do know for a fact there are some employers won't hire a person if he's full of tattoos. Uh, I know a lady, beautiful lady, she should have been a model down in Hollywood, New York, somewhere. But she has tattoos from her neck to her ankles. And she's wondering why she can't become a model. And I said, a lot of these people don't like uh, people with tattoos mm -hmm. and earrings and gold teeth and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. What have you uh, kind of come away with in terms of, you know, lessons learned from your life experience? Do you have more compassion for people or more caution? You know, when I was when I was growing up, I didn't like white people either. They didn't like me, so I didn't like them. Mm -hmm. But you know, after coming out here and um, being a, around a lot of people, I don't do that anymore. I, I don't hate anybody. It's I decided when I was when I started patrol, I was going to treat everybody with kindness, and that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I was I said, oh boy, I could get even get even with these white folks. They did me bad down south and blah, blah, blah. But I said, you know, no. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to treat everybody with respect and um, just go out of my way to to be kind, you know. Boy, you are very kind. Well, that didn't go so well <laughs> when I was working, but um, I, that, I, I just, just wanted to treat everybody with kindness and that's what I did. A lot of people said, we never see you in court. Well, you know, I, I used to catch my guys drunk and I'd throw them in the back of the car and take them home, throw them through the front door. You know, some women the same way. I had a ring of keys to a lot of homes. Mm. See my husband, I Richard, bring him home. Here's the key to the front door. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about curb service. That's amazing. Well, do you feel lucky, Pat, with your life experience having gone from the extreme deep south before you were treated as an equal citizen to rubbing elbows with celebrities and being on movies and TV shows and and now a published author. Do you feel lucky or, or do you really feel a sense of your own accomplishment, something that you did to change your situation? Well, I, I, I changed my situation. I was so happy to be here. I was so happy to be able to just buy gasoline with mm. no problems mm. and and walk into a coffee shop and to have coffee. It took me two months to go into a coffee shop because I didn't think I would be served even in uniform. Mm. And that, that was that was one experience, I'm telling you. That is amazing. Well, for all of you listening, we do have Pat Duvall's newest book published just recently titled from Colored Town to Pebble Beach, The Singing Sheriff. It's got his picture on the cover. You can't miss it. It's right at the uh, front table of Pilgrim's Way Community Bookstore and Secret Garden, located in downtown Carmel on Dolores between 5th and 6th. Um, so glad that you're going to be at the store August 23rd for a book signing, Pat, and you'll be available to meet with people and answer questions in a really informal, conversational setting. So... 
thank you for sharing all of this. I really appreciate your story and your willingness to share it openly. I think it has a lot to offer. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. <laughs> and again, uh, for those of you listening, you know that um, all of our events through the bookstore are listed on the website. That's pilgrimsway.com. 